right from the beginning of this pandemic, it just seemed clear, not only to me, but to anyone who's familiar with, you know, the science around air pollution, that this is actually going to make us a lot more vulnerable to the effects of the virus. To me, as a journalist, if anything else was having that impact on health and on lives, you know, we'd be talking about it all the time. And with air pollution, that was just not the case. So that was kind of what led me to this story. I felt like it needed to be told in a way that wasn't happening. Hello, <laughs> thanks for doing this um, so much. Thanks for joining me. Um, I guess I wanted to, to talk to you because I studied historical water pollution. So across the ages, how did we detect water pollution? How did we even come up with the idea of water pollution? And how did we start to sort of treat it and handle it and um, circulate water around in a, in a healthier way? And I thought it had a lot of strong parallels to air pollution. Because I think there's this kind of idea that um, that because water and air are sort of like a part of nature, that they just clean themselves, that they're, you know, you can't really make it dirty. It's just part of um, this system that will keep going around and we can sort of put things into the air and put things into the water and it won't matter because we don't have the power to, to dirty them. Um, and then obviously in the last sort of like 50 years, that's become, uh, you know, a, a, a total falsity. We know now, what can happen um, when we intake dirty air and dirty water. And I think what, what's been really interesting over the last couple of months is the links that have been being made between air pollution and COVID. And obviously, you know, you, you've just come off the back of choked, um, the age of air pollution and delving into all of those things. I mean, how much did you sort of think about these kind of global pandemics and, and the fear of a global pandemic when you were researching the book and how it might affect, um, you know, the next one? Um, well, it wasn't really something that was in my mind when I was working on Choked and reporting about air pollution all around the world. Um, but it's definitely something that has come to the forefront, um, the intersection of these two dangers since um, this virus has been upon us. Um, and really the reason that I started working on the book and the reason why I thought that air pollution deserved to have a book devoted to it, you know, for a, a popular a general interest kind of an audience is um, that it just really struck me that this is, you know, such a profound risk to our health, air pollution. It has, has such a tremendous effect on our, on our health and on our lives. And it seemed to me as a journalist, like it was just not getting the attention that it deserved. You know, when you start reading some of the science around air pollution and its health impacts, which is what I did at the very beginning of this project, you know, what you see is I think two things. Number one is that the ways it affects our bodies and our health are so varied and so tremendous. Mm -hmm. And number two is how powerful that effect is. So, you know, you, you, you very quickly in, in this kind of 
research and reading start to come across these just absolutely huge numbers, you know, um, of, of deaths attributable to air pollution. So globally, the World Health Organization says that dirty air is killing 7 million people every single year. More than 90% of the world's population breathes dirty air, unhealthy air. Yeah. Um, you know, in the US, uh, it's upwards of 100,000 people every year dying from air pollution. In China and India, more than a million people each every year. In the UK, where I live, it's somewhere around 40, 50,000 a year dying from this. Um, and I think almost what was even more shocking to me was the ways it affects us. So, you know, I was very ready to, and I think most of us would be to believe that, you know, dirty air could trigger an asthma attack. It could cause mm. other breathing problems, lung cancer, maybe even, you know, heart attacks or, or other cardio problems. Mm. Um, and those things for sure are all true, but it is actually so much broader than that too. So, you know, rising rates of air pollution are linked to you know, not just increased rates of breathing problems and heart attacks, but also strokes and dementia and Parkinson's disease and premature birth and miscarriages and just a long, long, long list of other health problems mm. right up to and including the biggest health problem, which is premature death. People, more people die when the air is dirtier. So to me as a journalist, if anything else was having that impact on health and on lives, mm. you know, we'd be talking about it all the time. And with air pollution, that was just not the case. Yeah. So that was kind of what led me to this story. I felt like it needed to be told in a way that wasn't happening. I mean, we're seeing that right now, right? With COVID, it's like we've got right. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths globally, and it's sure. the biggest news story. It's all that anybody is talking Absolutely, about. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, air pollution is known for chronic health problems now, like yeah. like the the sort of slow builders the mm -hmm. like you said you know we we've especially in kids it's been linked to lung problems right but lungs are kind of like yes a gateway to the rest of the body right we, you know we're, exactly, we're breathing these yeah. things in and they're going everywhere it's not just here and back again but a, the big link has been made because covid is a respiratory disease right right exactly and the other thing we know about COVID is that the people who are most vulnerable are people with pre-existing conditions. Right. Um, and we also know that people who are exposed to air pollution for many years, you know, me living in London, breathing dirty air, we have a terrible diesel problem here for years and years, and millions of other people around the world, um, you know, you're at higher risk for having all kinds of different chronic conditions. So it's funny because when the when the pandemic first hit and all the lockdowns started, I was just seeing all these articles everywhere about how, you know, the pandemic is bringing cleaner air. The pandemic is, quotes, good for the environment because no one's driving and no one's flying and, you know, factories are getting shut down and all of that. And that that narrative, I think, has really, really taken hold. And it just bothered me right from the beginning because I feel like it's just totally missing the big picture right. um you know it's this is not good for the environment in any way and we can talk about that um, right. you know in in terms of why and what the impacts are but m more immediately it felt to me like actually the 
the bigger connection, the more significant connection here is just what we were talking about, that, you know, air pollution is making us more vulnerable to COVID. Um, you know, regardless of whether fewer people, fewer cars are on the road right now, and there might be a temporary, very temporary dip in pollution. Yes, sure, that's true in a lot of places. But more significantly, people who have been breathing dirty air for many years are much more likely to have an underlying health problem, whether that's diabetes or a heart condition or some kind of a cancer. You know, these are all things that we know are making people people more likely to suffer a severe impact from this virus. Mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, dirty air compromises our immune systems. So it makes us less able to fight off any kind of a virus when it enters our bodies. It's it, dirty air is giving us greater levels of inflammation in the respiratory tract and in the lungs. That makes you more vulnerable to a virus. And there's a lot of research indicating that viruses can actually bond in the air, in the atmosphere around us with pollution particles, which makes those viruses, number one, more likely to hang around longer in the air. And number two, it helps them penetrate into our bodies and actually infect us. So, you know, right from the beginning of this pandemic, it just seemed clear, not only to me, but to anyone who's familiar with, you know, the science around air pollution, that this is actually going to make us a lot more vulnerable to the effects of the virus. Mm -hmm. And there was some research um, from the SARS epidemic 15, 18 years ago, indicating that that was very much the case. There was a study done that found in China that people who lived in the most polluted cities in China, if they got SARS, were twice as likely to die from it as people in less polluted cities. So that was an early warning sign. And now actually we're a few months into COVID and there's been a big study from Harvard where they crunched a lot of data that they already had in their systems about air pollution and they and they matched it up against some of the mortality death rates coming in from COVID. Mm-hmm. And they found very clearly that places with higher air pollution had a much higher risk of death right. for people who got COVID there, much higher levels of COVID mortality. Right. So that is the really big story and it actually shouldn't be surprising because it is because it is just absolutely the logical conclusion of everything that we already knew about air pollution and how it affects our bodies. And now it's already being borne out by science. And I'm sure that there will be more to come because this is a big area of research. Yeah, yeah. Like everyone's jumping on it right now, right? I, yeah. I, yeah, like just the fact that it's the mortality rate shows that it's, yep. it's what's already going on inside our bodies. Right. I mean, you know, you said uh, that the, the virus can attach to the PM, the particles yeah. in the air. And, you know, I'm just imagining walking down like clouds of COVID down the high street, you know, just like, right. like it's just sitting there. And I, I don't even have to be in contact with someone. I just have to walk through their breath and it's just going to sit there for me. Um, right. I mean, there's there's debate, right, about the cities because we live we live close together. We're, you know, I live in a in a big flat building. So, you know, the water is all kind of going around and, you know, we're more likely to catch it anyway. But I mean, has there been research on whether air pollution is, is a part of that? Like, are we because it's hanging in the air, are we definitely more more likely to get it? 
Yeah, so I mean, obviously, there's a lot of factors that are leading to cities being hubs of COVID mortality yeah. and density, just like you're saying, is a big part of that. But air pollution is another factor. And what is coming out of these studies, you know, telling us that places with higher pollution are more likely to have a, a severe experience of COVID, you know, that is useful information actually, because what the scientists have said is, you know, you can use that to plan how you're deploying resources. Is a place like London or a place like Northern Italy, which is very industrial, it has high levels of pollution, right. you know, certain parts of China, are those places gonna need more, you know, whether it's more ventilators or more PPE for the healthcare workers because they're gonna have a higher incidence of COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's useful for the long term for us to understand that air pollution is really having a severe impact on our health in a lot of ways, including making COVID more risky. And we need to think about that going forward and what can we do to, to get cleaner air? There are actually a lot of steps that can get us there. But it's also useful in the short term in, you know, planning how we respond to this pandemic Yeah, in different places that are differentially impacted. Yeah. I mean, why didn't that happen after after SARS? When you were doing your research for CHOKE, did SARS come up to you at all or was it sort of forgotten? No, that was a connection that I've only learned about since COVID-19 hit. Suddenly SARS seems a lot more relevant. <laughs> Um, I mean, I guess I was probably one of the many people to whom it seemed a little bit like a, a problem from the distant past mm. that had, you know, we had moved beyond. Um, but now, you know, uh, it's becoming very clear how these how these two things intersect. Mm. And it's very important to understand. I mean, one other thing that I kind of wondered about is I've seen the um, I've seen sort of like air pollution wind maps um there's like a a sort of google maps for air pollution and um, that you can have a look at online which is cool but scary um and it shows how pollution can actually spread like quite far quite significantly is that impacting covid at all or is anyone doing research into that yeah well it's really interesting because like i said there's been a lot of coverage of how these lockdowns have brought cleaner air mm in a lot of places. And yes, that is true. And I mean, I've been riding my bike around London during the, the lockdowns just for, for exercise and, and to get out and about a little bit. And you know, you can feel it there's for a while, at least there were very few cars on the road and you know, much, much less air pollution. I really noticed it, mm. but it is not really true to say that the lockdowns have brought clean air. They have brought cleaner air. Um, and there's a lot of different sources of air pollution. So of course, cars are one of them and there's been less driving during this pandemic. But, you know, agriculture, for example, is a big source of air pollution. Wood burning uh, sort of unexpectedly for me, and I think a lot of people is a really big contributor to air pollution. And especially in the early days of the pandemic when the weather was still a little chilly, mm. you know, people were home and I could smell, you know, wood smoke on my, on my block in London and right. that's very polluting. Right. Um, so there's a lot of different sources of air pollution. And yes, it does travel. And while London's air, just as an example, has been much cleaner in terms of traffic pollutants, um, we've had some really high uh, particle pollution episodes during the lockdowns. Particle pollution, there's a lot of different types of pollution. These tiny particles are very dangerous. They go very deep into your body. And they also have the ability to travel 
much further than some of the other pollutants. And that stuff has been blowing in from, you know, the, the way the winds blow is that it tends to come in from continental Europe. A lot of it is from agriculture, from farms in France and in the Netherlands, from coal-fired power plants all the way in Poland. You know, that stuff ends up in London. That's, a you know, a couple thousand miles away. So it's not such a simple story as saying, oh, you know, there's no cars on the road right now, so pollution is gone. Right. It's not gone. Right. It's not gone. And we know those cars are coming back too, probably more than ever, because people, you know, it's not a criticism, including me, are going to be staying away from public transportation. That's a place where we're in close proximity to each other. And, you know, obviously that feels scary now. Mm. Um, and it is dangerous in terms of the viral spread. So lots of places like London, Milan, many cities now are looking at, um, you know, closing roads and expanding bike lanes and encouraging people to cycle and, and walk and stuff like that. And great, I'm sure many more people will. But I think a lot of people are going to be getting into their cars and, you know, probably more even than before the pandemic. So that's why I think that this focus on, you know, the pandemic is good for the environment is really a, a false narrative and actually a, a dangerous and damaging narrative. Um, because it's a very temporary effect. Um, you know, we know those things are going to bounce right back as lockdowns end and economies reopen mm. at probably more than ever. Um, because the experience from past crises, not necessarily pandemics, but economic crises, is that they tend to be bad for the environment, not good for the environment. You know, yes, with the recession, and it's been the case with these lockdowns, you often see a fall temporarily in carbon dioxide emissions and, and gr other greenhouse gases that impact climate change. Mm -hmm. But they tend to come right back because there's an effort to kind of make up for lost time in terms of production. And, you know, that's already happening in China. Mm -hmm. The factories are going into overdrive. And perhaps more significantly, and we are already seeing this in a lot of places, particularly in the United States, economic crises and recessions oftentimes lead to a big um, loosening, a relaxation, a rollback of environmental regulations. Right. Um, you know, we're seeing that with the Trump administration already. They've essentially suspended enforcement of, of air and water pollution regulations for, you know, some indefinite length of time during the pandemic. They are continuing their very, very aggressive effort kind of while no one's really paying attention anymore to, to roll back regulations on all kinds of forms of air pollution, water pollution, mm -hmm. you know, carbon dioxide and climate. So, you know, in that way, th this kind of a crisis is likely or potentially could be actually damaging to the environment and to the climate in the long term, right. despite, um, you know, the, the sort of short term downward blips in, in different kinds of pollution that we've seen. And I also think the other thing that's damaging and that really rubs me the wrong way about that whole idea of the pandemic is good for the environment yeah. is that it sort of suggests that like, gosh, there's no other way we could have possibly, you know, gotten cleaner air and brought carbon dioxide emissions down yeah. other than, you know, this horrible situation where hundreds of thousands of people are dying and, you know, millions of people are losing their livelihoods and falling into, this is a horrible yeah. situation, right? Mm -hmm. No one thinks that a pandemic is a good way to reduce air pollution or to reduce carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it, this is not the way to do mm -hmm. it. Yes, it does show us very clearly that when you burn less fossil fuels, you know, whether it's, it's um, you know, coal in a, in a factory in China or whether it's, you know, diesel fuel in, in cars in traffic in London, sure, when you burn less fossil fuel, you get less air pollution and you also get less carbon mm. emissions. But the way to burn less fossil fuels in the long term is not to, you know, <laughs> shut Look down everybody the away. global economy. <laughs> the way to do it is to move to cleaner energy and to clean fuels. And, in you know, whether that's solar power, wind power, um, you know, electric vehicles, what have you, but more cycling and walking for sure. Mm. Um, and even if you if you look, um, you know, over the past 50 years in, for example, the United States, there's been a huge success story there in terms of getting cleaner air. You know, I'm talking pre the Trump administration mm. by, you know, effective regulation and requiring power plants to use better emissions, you know, better pollution scrubbers and requiring car companies to make better engines. Mm. And that's even even short of, you know, moving away from fossil fuels, just better regulation. So those are the ways to get cleaner air. You know, this devastating situation is not the way to get cleaner air. And I think it's damaging to to suggest that it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what people are, are sort of hoping for, right? Is that, yeah. you know, this, as well as the immediate sort of temporary benefits to the environment of us halting and going into hibernation. Um, yeah. I've, I've also read and seen a lot of sort of, I don't want to be a too negative here, but a lot of positive stuff about how we could use this crisis to sort of come out the other end, having learned a whole lot of lessons and just, right. you know, reevaluate the way that we run our every aspect of our lives. But I feel like I don't know. Like you said, there's there is, uh, you know, this this on the other hand, there's a lot of wanting to get back to normal by any means necessary. Like, you know, drive your car, don't get on public sure. transport, you know, go do what you have to do, no matter what it means. With Trump's EPA, exactly, you know, passing through things that will just get things back to normal as quickly as possible. Um, and as with sort of like the world wars this the baby boom and and the boom of everything yeah. else that sort of came after it is not necessarily good good for the environment this reassessment that we do may not right. come right well i mean i think there there are two different paths here right i mean like you say of course there is a huge desire on the part of everyone to just you know get out of our houses get back to work mm -hmm. get back to normal life and, and, you know, that is totally real and understandable. But I think there's also a question about, you know, what are we going to learn from this experience? And also, what kind of a recovery do we want? And that's not just about pollution. It's not just about climate and the environment. Mm. But it's also about, you know, the other huge fractures and failures that this this crisis has exposed, you know, whether it's the, the terrible... Um, economic inequality that that is sort of underlies our whole um you know um basis of of our societies yeah. and that's been exposed by the higher mortality rates among you know essential workers and and people on zero hours contracts who are having to go out to work on in the supermarket or mm -hmm. as uber drivers or whatever mm -hmm. um you know it's exposed to huge 
um, levels of racial injustice to people who maybe weren't necessarily white people who weren't aware of it. Yeah. Um, in the much higher deaths of of people of color. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of questions about, are we gonna recover just the same and just go back to how we were before in this very unequal sort of extreme capitalist fossil fuel based economy that we know is destroying the planet and the climate as well as the impacts that it has on, you know, human mm. well-being, or are we gonna try to build back with something better? So there is, um, you know, a lot of talk now around this idea of sort of quotes, green recovery or green stimulus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, can you use, obviously governments are gonna have to be putting a lot of money into economies, whether it's in Europe and Asia and the United States to, to get the world kind of back on its feet mm -hmm. economically. And are there ways to target that money so that it also achieves, you know, other beneficial ends, whether we, reducing inequality or reducing carbon emissions. You know, there was a study from Oxford recent, recently that showed when you put that kind of investment, you get a better return actually on the investment if you spend it on something that reduces greenhouse gases emissions wow. versus not. Um, you know, so places like um, New Zealand, places like South Korea are already, you know, working on these green stimulus packages um, Europe, the EU is talking about it. They already had this, these plans for a green deal mm -hmm. to, to cut carbon and improve quality of life across Europe. Now they're talking about interweaving that green deal together with the um, coronavirus recovery package that they're going to be working on. Great. Um, you know, a number of European governments are, are calling for that. Um, in the U.S., I think that's less likely to happen under the Trump administration, mm -hmm. you know, maybe at the state level or in the future, depending what happens in the election in November. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's a lot of focus on this. We saw it to some degree after the financial crisis, um, the, the Obama recovery package in 2009 actually did a lot to jumpstart some of the clean energy industries. But it wasn't enough and there were a lot of other measures that that ended up detracting from it in the long run right. and, and we haven't you know gotten where we need to go mm. but we are at a point now in terms of climate change where we know because the science is telling us that if we don't really dramatically reduce carbon emissions very quickly in the coming years we are in serious trouble and that we're not going to get them down fast enough mm -hmm. to avoid the, the most catastrophic impacts of, of climate change, whether that's floods and, and droughts and heat waves and, and wildfires and all the other things that we know come in, in this, you know, scary future if we don't deal with our emissions right now. Yeah. So, you know, in a sense, these we're, we're heading that way anyway, because actually renewable power now has a cost advantage. It's gotten so cheap over recent years as the price of manufacturing solar panels and wind turbines has come down, mm -hmm. that it actually now has a cost advantage over, you know, gas fired power, coal even fired power. But we're not, it's not happening fast enough to, to meet what the science tells us is needed. Right. So there's a lot of questions being asked about, you know, how can we use these recovery packages to sort of accelerate that transition, make it happen faster mm -hmm. so that it, we can really head off the worst effects of climate change. Right. That's the idea of green recovery. But, you know, it is not a, 
assert in any way. It's not guaranteed to happen. You know, there's a, a very different path too, which we talked about to do with, um, you know, just an unraveling of regulations and kind of let polluters do what they want in the name of kind of profit and, you know, supposedly saving the economy. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole sort of nationalistic and authoritarian impulse that we're seeing a lot of leaders kind of go with right now. Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, obviously that has its own um, very damaging effects in terms of political life, but also nationalism is kind of the opposite of what we need to do to, to deal with climate change, because that is a problem that really requires it, international cooperation. Mm. So, you know, I think we're, we are at a, you know, I think we know that, that crises, big crises can often be sort of turning points in history. And it seems that, you know, this crisis has all the makings of of a turning point, but I think we don't, it's not decided yet which way we're going to turn. Yeah. And it kind of depends on the decisions that we make and the decisions that our political leaders make in a lot of different countries, you know, in the coming weeks, months, years. Yeah. I mean, I read a, I heard of a study that was done, I think here in, in the UK, that was a sort of measure of what do people want um, as we yeah. come out, you know, this fork in the road, it was a, a survey of what do people want. And a lot of people, you know, there's this idea of like, we should scrap GDP and start thinking about measuring happiness and well-being and um, get rid of this idea of perpetual growth. I really wonder, yeah. and, and the, the results of the study in the UK was something like 70% of people were in favor of sort of switching over the two and 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 going down these m more environmentally friendly routes when we get to trying to get back to something better not something that was and i really wonder what the results would be if it was a us study or a brazil study or you know something a, a chinese study even um how much do you think this is up to politicians and how much will it be up to what corporations do and, and and industries as they come back to normal? Well, I think it is largely up to politicians because I think, you know, for the most part, we know that corporations do, you know, at the most what they are legally required to do and they need to be pushed to do it because this is a question of profit and the bottom line for them. And every dollar, every pound, every euro that you spend on you know, reducing your carbon emissions, reducing your pollution mm -hmm. is a dollar that's not going into your pocket. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have historically seen, you know, companies like Volkswagen, for example, cheat in order to maximize their profit. And the impact of that was felt by greater pollution and, you know, more deaths, more illness by people that, that breathe that pollution that's coming from their cars. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a pattern that we've seen again and again. So it does come down to politicians because it is our political leaders and our governments that have the power to make laws and make regulations and enforce those laws and regulations. Right. And, you know, as you say, there is actually really strong public support, and it's true in the United States as well, for climate action. Um, but I don't think the question is as much about public sentiment as it is about political will and the will of our leaders to act. Because what we also know is that these polluting industries, you know, if you're talking about, for example, fossil fuel companies, the oil and gas, you know, ExxonMobil mm. and Shell and BP and these huge, these are the, the wealthiest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the richest companies in human history and they're the biggest polluters in human history. 
And these companies and, and others like them are very, very politically powerful. And a lot of that influence is played out behind the scenes. And, um, you know, a lot of our politicians are beholden to these kinds of very wealthy, very powerful interests that like to stay invisible. You know, they're not out marching in the street necessarily for climate, mm. you know, action the way that that people who want to see climate action might be. But their influence is very much being felt in the halls of power. And it, and it historically has very often shaped our sort of political life and, mm. and the laws and the rules that that affect all of us. So, you know, I think that's where the challenge is and what our political leaders are going to do, who our political leaders are going to be and who they're going to be listening to mm -hmm. and whose interests they're going to be looking out for. You know, is it yours and mine and, um, you know, the the future of <laughs> the planet or is it, you know, the, the wallet of a, a coal company or a car company or what have you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That remains to me seen. I guess, um, like... A couple of like the EU, for example, they yeah. they set these sort of like transboundary targets. They sort of make sure everyone comes together so no one can be too mm -hmm. sly. Is is that a way around it? Is that a, a, a the future that we might be looking at, or do you think it's sure? I mean, within the but within the EU, you see a lot of wrangling too. You know, you have countries in in Central and Eastern Europe like Poland specifically has always been a real, you know, blocker of any kind of aggressive action on climate change right. or on air pollution. You know, it's largely because they are very, very coal dependent country and they don't want to give that up. Mm -hmm. And we know that coal is a huge contributor to air pollution and to climate pollution. You know, we've seen the same thing with Hungary and some of the other Central European countries that just want to block this kind of action. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is where I think nationalism and economic interests and politically powerful interests come into play. Certainly the EU has been, um, you know, compared to the US at least, something of a leader on climate. They're pushing forward with their Green New Deal. But it remains to be seen how aggressive this kind of action will actually be and how successful, you know, corporate interests and, and politicians who are kind of doing their bidding, how successful they'll be, they'll be in getting, you know, sort of watering things down, making them weaker, inserting loopholes, that sort of thing. Um, or sometimes they water down the effectiveness of enforcement. That's what we saw with the Dieselgate scandal, that the rules were all very well and good on paper, but they were not really getting enforced. They didn't mean anything out in the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a multilateral action through, um, you know, entities like the EU, you know, definitely can be much more effective, but it's hard to achieve as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if money's the incentive, though, I mean, look at what we're having with the NHS here in the UK right now, you know, yes. like, the, the results of what we do cost more money, surely. Yeah, well, Yes, I mean, I think that is definitely true. And certainly the, the long-term impacts of, of climate change are, you know, absolutely devastating to, to the future of the global economy and of human well-being, mm. um, you know, and of our ability to even live in large parts of the world that may become uninhabitable because of heat or storms, extreme weather of one sort or another. Mm. Um, 
But, you know, I think what it comes down to with all of these things is, number one, a reluctance to spend now to solve problems later. Right. Um, you know, particularly in very, very market, free market driven kinds of um, societies like the U.S. and the U.K. You know, we kind of want the market to take care of itself and we don't want to, you know, historically there has a bit long been a, a political philosophy that just doesn't really want to intervene. Right. Um, and I think the other thing is that the people who have to spend the money, the costs, are not necessarily borne by the same people who bear the impact. So, for, for example, with air pollution, we've seen that very clearly. I think it's true with climate change as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I keep coming back to the example of VW because it's a very vivid one. But, um, you know, to reduce air pollution, it does cost money, yes someone has to spend money to make a cleaner car is more expensive than to make a dirty car, mm -hmm. to make a power plant, you know, that has good technology to, to kind of scrub the smoke that's coming out of its smokestack. Mm -hmm. It's going to cost more than not having the scrubber there, right? There's a, there's a price tag that's attached to that. Yeah. Studies in the, US, in the United States have found that literally the benefits in, in just dollar terms are dozens of times the cost because the health effects of air pollution are so profound and they affect our productivity, our, you know, our healthcare costs, all of that, right. our longevity even. Um, there was one study that found that the, the cost, the, the dollar benefit of the Clean Air Act in the United States has been somewhere around 40 or more times greater than the cost. However, the cost is to be paid by uh, companies, a discrete number of companies, who, they know who they are and they know how much it's going to cost them. So that power, you know, utility company that doesn't want to put the scrubber in its smokestack because it's going to cost X number of dollars mm -hmm. or, you know, Volkswagen who doesn't want, doesn't want to manufacture a cleaner car because it's going to cost X number of dollars. They know what it's going to cost them. They don't want to spend the money and they have the political power and the voice to push back against those kinds of laws mm. and regulations. Whereas the benefits are health benefits that are invisible. They are spread over millions and millions of people who don't even know that they have gotten those benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, so in that American calculation, just as an example, that the benefits of the Clean Air Act are 40 times or something greater than the costs, the people who benefited are, you know, 300 million Americans mm -hmm. who don't know that their father didn't have a heart attack right. or, you know, they, their kid didn't have an asthma attack because of some regulation that they never heard of or never thought about. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a political problem there. There's not enough of a, a constituency, a political voice for, to argue on behalf of the benefits. And that is very much true with climate change as well. So we've seen these very, very powerful companies the Saudi Aramcos, the Exxons, the Shells, you know, their entire business model is based in fossil fuels, mm -hmm. oil and gas, burning these fuels that are literally, you know, destroying our future. But they want to hold on to that business model as long as they can. They know it's under threat, but the longer they can delay, the longer they can continue to make a profit mm -hmm. off of all this drilling and, and selling of oil and gas. So, you know, the, the incentives are sort of wrong and the, you know, 7 billion people around the world whose futures and whose children and grandchildren are going to be compromised by the effects of climate change, mm -hmm. you know, don't feel that 
impact as much. It's in the future. Mm -hmm. It's spread among many people. We don't know, you know, we don't know it and, and we don't have the same kind of voice and kind of behind the scenes power that those companies do. So I think that that has always been the, the political problem, the dynamic that prevents us from taking action on any of these collective problems, whether it's air pollution, climate change, pandemic preparation, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose as well, when it when it comes to it, there's almost this like idea for politicians that if they, you know, when it comes to a, like a damage or a pollution, that, something that hits the headline, something that is bad, and they're able to clean it up or, you know, move right. move people away and fix the problem, then that's another tick. So it's kind of like tick there, tick there, everybody's happy. Whereas like if nothing happened in the first place, you know, we'd all just be much healthier and, and trundling along and there would be nothing to exactly. talk about. Exactly. You don't really, you don't really get political credit for something that didn't happen. Right of danger that you prevented. You don't really get political credit for like, you know, 40,000 people would have died this year from air pollution if I hadn't passed that law 10 years ago. You know, politics just doesn't work that way, right? right. Um, so that is a big part of the problem as well. And I think, you know, we have become a very, very short term society, whether it's in our, you know, political systems that are just planning for sort of the next crisis the next day the next election you know in our our corporate and our economic systems it's all about you know what profit is or what dividend or what share price stock price is this company going to report mm -hmm. you know in the next quarter mm -hmm. rather than spending money you know that's more for the long term and we've seen this you know beyond environment as well we've seen it for example with um you know, Boeing, a company that used to be renowned for its safety mm. and, and its incredible engineering and that, you know, we've had this whole thing with the 737 MAX, right? And there's been all this really powerful reporting that's been done about how Boeing in recent years has become transformed into a company that is really very, very focused on what is it, what is the share price? you know, what is the quarterly sort of next report that they're going to be able to make to the markets, mm -hmm. because that's what determines their CEOs pay, their executives pay. And, you know, they they made that happen by cutting corners in terms of safety. And, you know, two planes crashed and more would have crashed if they hadn't been forced to stop. So, you know, that's, that's what a short term kind of focus does to a corporate culture, right? Mm. That's one example with aviation safety, but we've seen exactly the same thing with, you know, whether it's air pollution and, and a car company or climate pollution and, and an oil company. And, and it's the way our political systems work too. We're very focused on short term rather than long term. And a lot of the biggest crises we face are slower moving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there around the world, you know, looking at it, most big most big companies of this kind of area have their CSR programs. They have maybe even their like greenwashing activities. Like I know every year in London, Shell puts on a big expo about all of the green technologies that they're working to fund with like zero point zero 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 or one percent of their net profit. You know, exactly. Um, yeah. I wonder, like, if you know how common it is, or if it even exists at all, of corporations actually legally being bound to you know pay for any of the problems that they incur like with the with the lead poisoning in flint was there any there was nothing that ge had to do right there was they were let off 
Right. So, you know, yes, absolutely. Companies can be made to pay. I mean, but the only ones who can make them pay are governments. You know, you and I can't do that as individuals, right? Mm -hmm. But that's the principle of, you know, a, a great deal of environmental law, polluter pays. And that principle was first embodied in the American Clean Air Act in 1970, mm -hmm. which was really a, a landmark law that's delivered tremendous, um, you know, health benefits for many millions of Americans because you can make companies responsible for the pollution that they produce. Right. Um, it is possible. It takes political will. It takes effective regulation and it takes strong laws. But there's no um, examples. You know, C CSR is great. And, you know, it's nice for cor for corporations to be responsible. And I don't want to say that every company on earth is just a terrible polluter that will, you know, do whatever they can get away with. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, most companies, I mean, I've been reporting on environmental things for you know, environmental stories for 15 years. And generally speaking, I can tell you that if a company is, you know, accused of some kind of a pollution violation, or if there's any question about environmental, whatever, and you ask them, you know, what they're doing, the first thing that they will say, their spokesperson, when you get them on the phone, is, you know, we meet all the legal requirements. We follow all the applicable regulations. Mm -hmm. So that's what they do. It's the floor, but it's also oftentimes the ceiling. Mm -hmm. um, so if governments are not requiring very much of corporations in terms of, you know, protecting health, protecting our collective well-being, protecting the environment, mm -hmm. then they're not going to do it. And what's more, if you make the regulations very weak, you are actually punishing companies who have goodwill and who are well-meaning. Because if you set the floor too low in terms of what's allowed and how much pollution you're allowed to put out, mm -hmm. then a company that wants to be responsible and wants to do the right thing, they're gonna get hurt because the next guy is gonna undercut them by just polluting more and saving money. Mm -hmm. And it becomes disadvantageous to actually be responsible if the, you know, robust regulation is not there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's important to remember as well when you're talking about leaving it to companies to do the right thing. Right. You're actually making it harder for companies to do the right thing. And you're economically disad disadvantaging companies who want to do the right thing if you don't create strong laws around public health and well-being and environment. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the model, I, I was wondering if there was any sort of like, you know, they pay in an ongoing sense, you know, they send regular amounts of money for the amount of pollution that they put out or anything like that. But that is a scary idea that it, it's kind of like the carbon trading thing, right? Right. Well, if you have good enforcement of an environmental regulation, then a company will be fined and sanctioned and forced to clean up mm -hmm. if they are polluting above whatever the limit is. You know, the other financial aspect is that they're supposed to be spending the money in order to comply with the regulation, with, you know, whatever, the, installing a certain technology and, you know, in their equipment or whatever mm. to make sure that it's clean enough. So that's where the cost comes in. Um, but enforcing regulations is the way that you make companies pay and ideally make them clean up, not just pay a fine. Right, right. Yeah, that's much yeah. the better way. I mean, so you and I are both in, in London, um, yeah. and it has, like you said earlier, it's been lovely. I do the, I'm do. i sort of near the city, which is completely deserted right now. So every time I go for yeah. a walk, it's just 
so much nicer. Um, noise mm-hmm. and and you know cleaner air and, and empty pods and stuff. But um, my mum used to live in London in like the 80s, I think. And she used to tell me of how she would like come home and like, she would shower like three times a day because she was like, she could feel yeah. the pollution on her skin or whatever. And I was always like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. But I mean, you have a whole chapter in your book dedicated to, to London, I guess, because the inspiration was at your fingertips every day. But like, yeah. Was there a success story between now and then or or are we kind of Yeah, changed? I mean generally generally speaking pollution has improved in most parts of the developed world in wealthy countries in in Europe, the UK, right. in the United States. It's much better than it was. Yes, it is better now than it was in the 80s. You know, back in the 50s um and the 60s before the the British Clean Air Act and when it was just starting to come into effect, you know, in in the days of the the um, the London fogs, mm. those pea soup fogs that were very, very heavy pollution, actually, you know, that was about coal. That was, there were literally coal fired power plants right. in the city, in, in London. Um, and people were burning coal in their homes for heat. Mm. And that was devastating to, to public health. You know, thousands and thousands of people died just in the course of a few days during the great smog in the early 1950s. So that was eventually outlawed. There's no coal burning, um, at that level within London anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we moved on to another series of problems. You know, there, there was still a lot of industry and there were, you know, increasing numbers of cars and vehicles on the roads. Um, and at that time, back in the 80s, when your mom was talking about, you know, there was still, for example, lead mm. in petrol, uh, which is devastating, you know, uh, in terms of um, intellectual development for children. Lead is a neurotoxin. And it took a very long time to regulate and and actually take the action that was needed right. to get that out of petrol. So we're better now, but uh, we're not better enough. And you know, I think one of the things I learned that really shocked me into writing this book is that that London and the UK and Europe as a whole actually have really significantly worse air quality than the United States, and therefore much higher death rates um, around air than the US. Now, why should that be? You know, I've lived in London and I've also lived in New York. Mm -hmm. And I know that they're both cities with a lot of cars on the road and with a lot of traffic. Mm -hmm. And I can't see any reason why New York's air quality should be, I can't remember, but I want to say something like a third better than London's. There's absolutely no reason why that should be the case. And it actually took me a long time in understanding this book, it, in, in reporting this book, why that was. Right away, it made me angry. Why is the air so much worse here? Mm. That was how I got started on the on the project. I mean, it's true that it's better than it was, you know, back in the 80s. But I, I think London's air quality is still noticeably very bad. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not talking about during lockdown, but, um, you know, before lockdown and, and soon to be back. Mm. You know, it bothers me every day. I feel it when I walk out on the street. I, you know, I don't have any health problems myself or within my family related to it, fortunately. But, you know, I, I um, smell it. Mm. I can taste it. I can feel this grittiness on my teeth when I've been out walking on, on the street. I get sometimes like a little bit of a, a lightheadedness or a, a, almost a little bit of a headache walking down even not a very busy street, but just a slightly busy street in London. Mm. And I don't experience that in even New York. Right. And I never 
understood why that was, but I was always aware of it from the first time I moved here, which is almost 20 years ago now. And it was only in the course of reporting this book that very slowly I came to understand that it's to do with two things. So, you know, I think in, in London and across the UK and Europe now, we understand kind of the diesel mess that we're in, that there's a much higher rate of diesel usage in most parts of the world. Diesel is mainly only used for like really heavy kind of trucks, buses, like construction equipment, garbage trucks are run on diesel. Diesel is a much more polluting fuel even than petrol. It's harder to get a diesel vehicle to, you know, be cleaner than it is with a petrol or gasoline right. vehicle. Um, it's really only Europe that has a very high percentage of people that use diesels for private cars, mm -hmm. like, you know, just a ordinary car that, that you or I might own. Mm -hmm. um, it's a much higher percentage of diesel in the UK and Europe versus the US and other parts of the world. And it's a much more polluting fuel. There's a whole history to why that is the case. Diesel is slightly more um, efficient. It gets better mileage than petrol, or it used to anyway. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the case anymore, but it's much more polluting. So I think we know now, this is a story that's been told quite a lot, that this was a big mistake that governments and historically Europeans anyway have used more diesel than Americans because they care about mileage more than Americans. But for, for a time in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was seen as a, a way to start cutting carbon emissions as a climate friendly fuel. Mm -hmm. Diesel was sort of sold as this clean green thing that was going to help us, you know, because you get better mileage, yeah. right? So if you get 15% better mileage, you're using 15% less fuel to go the same distance. Right. That's 15% less carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So that's not the answer to climate change in the long run, but some people around the turn of the century thought, you know, it's a way to start shrinking our carbon footprints. That was a terrible mistake. First of all, the climate benefit did not even pan out. And second of all, actually, first of all, the, the health impacts have been terrible because diesel is, like I said, much more polluting in terms of not carbon and the planet, the climate, but local air quality and our health. Um, mm. But the second thing that it took me a longer time to understand, and I think that people still don't really sufficiently understand, there are regulations, there are rules on the books that say if you are a, a company manufacturing a diesel car or a petrol car or whatever, this is what is allowed to come out of the tailpipe. This much of you know pollutant A, this much of pollutant B, this much of pollution pollutant X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. and the rules have get it gotten tighter and tighter over the years, but air quality has not gotten better. And what we learned five years ago when the, the Volkswagen scandal, the Dieselgate scandal broke, is that the companies were cheating. They were not following the rules. And that, that cars that Volkswagen, and it wasn't just Volkswagen, it was almost every company that was making and selling these private diesel cars that are so popular all across Europe, mm -hmm were emitting not a little bit more than the legal limit of pollution, but they were emitting literally 8, 10, 12, 15 times more than the legally allowed level of particularly this pollutant called nitrogen dioxide, which is very harmful to your health when you breathe it in. Yeah. And that's the pollutant that Europe and London is really suffering with in recent years. So that is terrible. And of course you think Volkswagen, you know, mm all these other companies, terrible that you cheated. And it is terrible. They shouldn't have done it. But 
the next question you have to ask is, how come no one caught them? You know, this went on for years, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We have regulatory agencies, we have environmental enforcement agencies mm -hmm. that are supposed to be enforcing the rules. You know, they're not self-enforcing. Why did Volkswagen get away from get away with this yeah. for so long? And like I said, it's not just Volkswagen, it's other companies too that were exploiting all of these loopholes that were riddled in in these regulations. And what what I learned in reporting this book is that Europe, including the UK, has done a very, very poor job of enforcing its rules. And funnily enough, the United States, which I'm an American and, you know, we do not, we are not used to thinking of ourselves as environmentally ahead of the curve in any way compared to Europe. And generally speaking, we're not on, on almost anything. But on air quality, the United States has done a much better job, I'm talking pre-Trump historically mm. over the last 50 years, um, of not just making good rules, but actually enforcing them. And funnily enough, I told you that Americans don't drive many diesels mm. and they don't, but they drive some. And Volkswagen, with its you know, very, very intentional, you know, they've, they've been criminally liable now mm. for this cheating. It was not an oversight or a mistake. Um, they got caught and prosecuted in the United States where the impact of their cheating was much less because there's far fewer of those cars on the road compared to Europe. So Volkswagen in America, it was they were caught by the California um, State Air Quality Agency and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Mm -hmm. And Volkswagen, since that cheating emerged, has been forced to spend billions of dollars in the U.S. to compensate people who bought those cars, to buy them back, to repair them and bring them into compliance with the rules, what they're allowed to put out in terms of pollution or get them off the roads. And in Europe, that still has not happened. Still now four and a half, five years after this happened, there was a study that came out last fall by an NGO in Brussels that found that there are still 50 million, it was actually more than 50 million cheating vehicles on roads across Europe, eight and a half million of those are in the UK that are still emitting three or more times the legal limit of nitrogen dioxide. So not only are the companies still selling cheating vehicles, they're cheating by less now, but they're still over the limit. But all those 50 million cars that they've been selling over the years that don't follow the rules are still out there. Mm. People are still driving them and we are still breathing the air quality that results and instead of the air pollution that results. And instead of actually enforcing the law on the companies who flouted it so flagrantly and making them pay, these are companies like Volkswagen and, and their peers in the auto manufacturing industry, mm -hmm. what Britain and Europe have done is try to actually make drivers, individual drivers, car owners pay but you know, through this very, we've we've ended up with this very very patchwork approach to pollution, which is you know, London, you have bad air pollution. You know, make an ultra low emission zone where you don't let these cars that are so over the limit of what they're legally allowed to pollute. Right. You know, don't let them come in. Car charge the drivers who are driving them. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen this really patchwork approach where the national government and national governments like the UK and other governments 
have really abdicated their responsibility. You know, a city like London or like Manchester or Paris or Barcelona or whatever, you know, Coventry, small cities, big ones, towns, those local governments don't have the power to make a multi-billion dollar international company like Volkswagen follow the law. Mm -hmm. Only national governments have that power, but national, they haven't used it. So they're not making the companies follow the law. And they're just putting it onto localities, onto mayors, you know, local councils, you know, that you have to clean up your own air. Well, the only way that, that local governments can do it is by cracking down on individuals. So actually the drivers of these cheating diesels, you know, they sometimes get demonized in, in this conversation. Why are you driving this car that's so polluting? They're not actually the perpetrators, they're the victims mm. of fraud mm -hmm. by multi-billion dollar companies that sold them cars that didn't meet the legal requirements. You know, people who bought a, a Volkswagen didn't, they thought that, you know, you would fairly assume, right, that it meets whatever the legal, legal yeah. requirements are. So, but now the the cost of cleaning the air is being put on to individuals. You know, if you own one of these cars, you have to either spend the money, I forget, 12 pounds, I think, extra to drive into the London ultra low emission zone with one of these old diesels, or you have to spend the money to buy a new car. Mm. You know, I'm not saying that that's a bad policy. You know, cities like London are doing that because we're in such a health crisis with air pollution and we have to do something. Mm. And a mayor doesn't have the power, like I said, to enforce laws on a, a huge company. All you can do is restrict what comes into your city. But it would be so much fairer, actually, the, the money, the, the, the economic burden would fall on the companies if it if it could fall on the companies if national governments took action like the British government, other European governments, rather than putting the cost on to individuals. And it would obviously be so much more effective too, because you could get those cars off the roads mm. or get them into compliance with the law so much quicker. Yeah. But you know, as I think often happens with environmental issues, we're ending up just putting the burden on to individuals rather than really looking at the bigger systemic problem, which is a failure of enforcement by governments and rampant cheating by corporations Yeah, that has led to the problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And it, it reflects in road tax as well, right? That's just another way that people yeah. with diesel cars have to pay. I mean, there's a, there's a great uh, Netflix doc on what California did with VW. I yeah. don't know if you've seen it. Really, really mm -hmm. good, really thorough. Why, why haven't the British and European governments been able to to do the same? Well, I think that partly it's to do with the structure of Europe's um, air quality enforcement system, right. which has been very um, decentralized. The car companies have a very powerful voice there. You know that we know that VW is a very, very politically influential company, particularly in Germany. Mm -hmm. Germany has a lot of power across the EU. Um, and there's been a real failure there. It's basically a, an enforcement system that has been designed to fail. So whereas in the United States, we've seen, you know, again, I'm speaking pre-Trump historically, the Environmental Protection Agency has been a pretty well-resourced agency, mm -hmm. not just in terms of money, but it's been well-resourced in terms of expertise. So, you know, up until Trump sort of got them all running out the door, the Environmental Protection Agency was filled with people who had not just legal expertise 
in you know these very complex regulations not just scientific expertise in what is the health impact of all this pollution but also actually engineering expertise in terms of how to cars work you know how do you get them to run cleaner right for example they they've had the epa has had its own car lab in michigan near detroit where all the car companies are headquartered so you know they have the expertise to when a new regulation kind of comes out and a car company a gm or ford or whatever says oh you know we can't do that it's too expensive to get these cars to run clean actually the epa people can go into their own lab and say oh you know here we can do it. Look, we made the engine run clean. Right. You can do it too. Right. And they've also been very meticulous. You know, I, I met someone actually who was involved in exposing the Dieselgate scandal in the United States. And he told me that when the EPA historically puts out a regulation, you know, they follow it up with like dozens of letters and circulars and advisories that literally define every single term in that regulation. Because if you don't, he told me, then the companies will define them, make those definitions themselves, yeah. and they will find loopholes yeah, yeah. and they will create loopholes for themselves. So historically in Europe, there has not been that kind of effective enforcement and there has not been an equivalent of, um, you know, a fairly central, well-resourced enforcement agency like the US EPA. You know, you might ask now that Brexit is happening, will Britain build its own better air quality enforcement agency? Unfortunately, I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, you know, we've seen the British government very much over recent years, successive governments really drag their heels on air quality. They've spent more time and effort and money and energy in sort of fighting off lawsuits, mm. trying to get them to do anything than they have in actually trying to solve the problem. That's why it's fallen on local governments in, in London and elsewhere to try to deal with it on their own. Mm. Um, but you know, even bigger than that, I think we know really that Brexit has been very much a deregulatory project. A lot of the impetus behind Brexit, you know, the public talk was a lot about sovereignty and immigration and taking back control of our borders and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I think behind the scenes, a lot of the big money supporting that campaign and that effort and that ideology was to do with deregulation and, and breaking free of European regulation on all kinds of environmental issues, health issues, safety issues, you know, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's pretty unlikely that you would see, you know, a huge deregulatory push like that to turn Britain into this like a low tax, low regulation state the idea of sort of Singapore on Thames, you know, that you would see that lead to a more effective air pollution mm. effort, because we know that it requires, a, you know, an effort by government and um, by regulators to really be, um, you know, proactive and effective. And I, I just don't think that Brexit is likely to lead to that kind of, a, a, you know, mechanism. God, no. I mean, we don't even know yeah. if that's like gonna happen on time again so maybe maybe we won't have to think yeah. about it but yeah no I can't imagine that either I I did hear this is reminding me because I heard there's a town in southern Spain um I think mm -hmm. it's southern Spain um where the mayor was like a he was a medical doctor before becoming mayor and he was really concerned with public health and mm -hmm. 
uh, over the last sort of five years has turned the whole city into a car-free zone. So it's just yeah. like completely, you know, buses will drop people off at the periphery of the city and all of the innards are, um, you know, to a greater extent than just the sort of medieval little bit um, that you get with a lot of European cities. And people there love it. The population has something like grown yeah. by like 30% and, um, you know, just with the benefits that it has for kids and schools and, and even sort of like being able to put restaurant tables out into where the road used to be mm-hmm. um, has made the whole place really great. And, you know, it sounds like it t- t- maybe takes pushes and nudges and it may only work for like smaller cities, but that does sound like a dream um and maybe it could happen (laughs) yeah i mean absolutely you know and that is something that that local governments really can do you know a a city cannot enforce regulations on a multinational company Mm. but a city can choose how it you know wants to set its priorities and one you know idea that i really heard a lot in reporting this book is this idea of you know who who is the city for? Is a city for cars or is a city for people? Mm-hmm. Because what we actually know is that it's not just air pollution, but that cars and traffic have such a detrimental effect on quality of life in general in a city, whether it's, you know, safety and pedestrian, um, you know, kind of people getting hit by cars, mm-hmm. um, whether it's noise, mm-hmm. especially diesel, but any kind of, um, you know, combustion engine, fossil fuel engine, is very very noisy mm. um and you know you really feel that when you're walking down the street and you know get kind of a headache or whatever mm. um and also in terms of just our our physical um activity and physical health you know active travel active transportation whether it's biking walking whatever mm. is so much better for us than you know sitting in a car and driving somewhere so obviously you know some distances you have to drive, you can't ride a bike, um, you know, if it's 40 miles or whatever. Um, but a lot of a lot of trips within cities, particularly where where, you know, things are denser, you, you can actually do pretty well by um, by bikes and um, by walking, particularly if that matches up and, and hooks up very nicely with you know, a train network or bus network or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was in the Netherlands a few months ago, back in um, November. And I mean, that is obviously a famously bike friendly country, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't always, it wasn't always so actually. There was a big campaign in the eighties because people were worried about um, road safety and actually kids getting hit by cars. There were a series of, of you know, of deaths um, where, where children got hit by cars mm-hmm. and it led to this huge um, political movement um, that succeeded in pushing governments, local governments and national government to actually prioritize biking. Um, right. And, you know, I was in the middle of Amsterdam, which is obviously a really big city. It's not that there's no vehicle traffic there. There is. There's cars and, and trucks and some vans and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the rules are, but there, there's far fewer um vehicles and there's many more bikes and it's just such a pleasure mm-hmm. um you know to walk around there the air feels clearer it's less noisy you don't have to worry you're going to get you know knocked over in the middle of the road mm-hmm. um and you know you don't have um neighborhoods being chopped up by by busy roads right. the way that they are in a place like london and you have much more of, of a street life. It's a different kind of a sort of vibrancy and energy, 
you know, there's so much space that we give that we don't even realize to cars in in our cities. And and I was um, writing something in, in one of my book chapters about this, about my own neighborhood. And I started to describe a certain street as being a two lane road. And then I, it took me a minute and, and another visit out there actually, before I realized it's actually a four lane road but two lanes are parked cars, you know, parking on both <laughs> yeah. sides, right? Yeah. And then two lanes of um, of traffic that's moving. Mm. And, you know, then people complain when you give, you know, 10 inches or whatever it is to a tiny little terrifying bike lane. Yep. Um, so we don't even think about it because this is so built into the, the DNA of our cities mm-hmm. in so many places that everything is just built for cars. Mm-hmm. Um and you can actually do it differently. In the Netherlands, they, you know, they changed their priorities mm-hmm. and they created um, car-free zones. They created tremendous amounts of parking for bikes. They hooked it up with the, the train network. So like in, in Utrecht, uh, I went there to visit a friend of mine and they have the biggest um, bike parking lot, I think in Europe, right underneath the train station, right. many thousands, I can't remember the number of bikes that you just ride it, you you know, ride your bike in there from your house or whatever yeah. on these beautiful bike lanes. You don't have to worry about getting hit by car right into the basement of the train station. You park your bike and you're, you're right upstairs on a train. And of course they have great public, um, you know, train networks, great transit too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can really get where you're going in, in, you know, a large majority of the cases without having to get into a car, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but you can't ask people to do that if the infrastructure is not there, right? I mean, I normally don't ride my bike in London. I have been during lockdown because there's so few cars on the road, Mm. but normally uh, I'm too scared, Mm. you know, unless I can ride through a park or something. It's very frightening here, you know, even air pollution aside, it's, you feel like you're taking your life in your hands. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you can you can reorganize the roads so that not there, not that there's no cars, but, you know, that that bikes and, and pedestrians have, you know, priority as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like make it safe and convenient for people. Make it the better yeah. choice. And that will be the choice that's made. It's it's not yeah. too complicated. I think just before we went into lockdown, you know, like super disappointingly, the government did announce a big a billion pound fund for cycling and walking expansion in in across the UK I believe but I don't know it what's happened to that um because then obviously we went into this uh, you yeah. know this crisis I mean we've talked a lot about air pollution in cities but earlier you mentioned agricultural air pollution and yeah. I'd love to hear more about that because it's not really something that I, I guess I link it seems like, a, a, you know, we've been having right. keeping cattle and farming for, you know, thousands of years. So how is it? Yeah, it is. It is unexpected, but it's actually a really big contributor to air pollution and a large percentage of the particle pollution. These tiny, very dangerous particles that drift through the air actually come from farms. Right. And a lot of it relates to our very, very, um, you know, large scale, these sort of industrial scale, um, you know, very, very intensive approach to agriculture. And, you know, one thing that I guess you have to understand about air pollution is that it's not just that the pollutant comes from wherever it comes from and then you breathe it in. It's that all these different things are going into the air and they're combining with each other in ways that can sometimes make them more harmful. 
So that's the case with a lot of the pollution that comes off of farms. So a lot of it is to do with um, fertilizers um, that are, you know, very heavily used by this really, you know, huge intensive um, farming operations. Some of it to do is to do with like manure that is um, just being put in these huge lagoons and kind of aerated and, and there's nitrogen coming off of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was at a, at a, you know, in a really rural farming area of um, California, the Central Valley out there. And, and I was seeing these huge piles of, I didn't know what, by the side of the road, sort of covered with these big white tarps, like taller than a house mm -hmm. and bigger than a football field. And it turned out that they were huge piles of feed that is basically like fermenting green, like stalks and corn and things like that that are fermenting under these big tarps and they take it off and then they, they feed, they're feeding it to, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of cows that are, are being, um, you know, kept in these really small areas that, you know, are filled with dairy farms and things like mm -hmm. that. And when the, when the tarps come off, the, this sort of fermenting stuff releases all this ammonia. So you have ammonia coming from here and nitrogen coming from there and other things coming and it all combines in the air and it combines with the fumes that are coming from other sources like traffic. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get, um, you know, in, in these chemical reactions of the air that are happening in the air, all, all different kinds of pollutants are coming from there. And, and a big one that is created is particle pollution, these tiny, very, very dangerous um, pollutants. Mm -hmm. So it is an unexpected source and it's why air pollution is not just an urban problem. It's a, you know, much wider than that. It's a rural problem too. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's blowing around everywhere, it's just everybody's. Exactly. Around, right? It travels. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing is, I think what we discussed earlier about COVID and sort of having these, these two, this fork in the road, these two choices that we might be able to make um, yeah. about coming out is it worries me because I feel like as a as a group humans have a really like short memory we just kind of like if it yeah. you know we we've heard about it on the news and then we just kind of like can forget about it and overcome it already you know we've already forgotten about australia's wildfires and that was only less than six months ago you right. know but um i really hope that that with things like air pollution with this we can we can take it much more personally into our own memories because that yeah. that can be effective um, and, you know, maybe we can make some changes based on that. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think anything's inevitable. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is a political problem, air pollution and climate change. It requires a political solution. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that the answers lie in, in politics yeah. rather than in necessarily like individual actions. And, um, you know, as we talked about, I think this is a, a potentially a pivot point in, in history, this pandemic, this crisis mm. we've been experiencing in such a global way that's affected all of us. And I don't think we know which way it's going to pivot yet. And I don't think it's decided. So there's still, you know, a lot to play for, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for this. That was really great. I think is there anything else you think of great. to talk about? But no, it's been was... great. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. I think there's a lot, you know, a lot of really interesting stuff there. So yeah. I'm glad to have the chance to 
hash it out with you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think opened a lot of doors for a lot more things that I want to look at. So thank you so much. And um, cool. Oh, yeah. it's a pleasure. Great to talk to you. Yeah, we'll speak again soon, yeah? Okay, cool. cool. <laughs> Bye. Bye, see ya.